1: Welcome back to another fine episode of the Cinematography Podcast. So happy to be here. How are you doing? I'm doing quite well. A lot's going on right now in the industry. (laughs) Yeah, a little bit. But before we get into what's happening, who's on the show today?
0: Uh, We have Catherine Coldiron, who is the author of Junk Film, Why Bad Movies Matter, And it's a really, really cool book. I heard her on the Dana Gould Hour, which is a podcast I can't recommend highly enough. This book is great, and it kind of does a deep dive into a subject that I hold near and dear to my heart. And uh, Dana Gould is a little obsessed with Plan 9 from Outer Space, the uh, Ed Wood movie. And Mm -hmm. Catherine in this uh, devotes like two whole chapters. It's an exegesis of plan nine from outer space it's like it's like a beat by beat and it's about as thorough an analysis as you'll find but what i love about her book and what i love about her angle on this is sort of that it's what is instructive about watching bad movies and we're not talking about like campy movies or whatever we're talking about like movies that fail at being movies really Hmm. Uh, fundamentally flawed Yeah, and most of them are kind of like smaller independent movies, but she does talk about the old uh, sci-fi movie, Attack of the 50-Foot Woman. Mm, Uh, she, She talks about Showgirls and Staying Alive, you know, which are both big studio films. She talked about a movie that I had never heard of before. It's bad, but it's weird bad. It's called After Last Season. And I, I would just encourage anyone listening to this to go look it up. Uh, l- look up after last season and the the weird enigma of its, its writer-director. But I don't want to say anymore because we go way into it with Catherine. And we are going to
1: give away a book, uh, an autographed copy. Hey, all right. So, uh, yeah, if you want to win the book, we're going to do it through Instagram. Go to The Cinepod on Instagram. You'll find the instructions on how to enter the book giveaway. And now... Close focus. So for close focus, we both kind of felt
0: that there's a couple of competing things going on in the world in our industry. And, you know, the biggest thing in our industry is obviously that right now we're a we're a two strike industry two one strike and we're out basically, but we got two strikes. <laughs> Uh, We got uh, we got the Writers Guild, of course. And then as of last week, uh, the Screen Actors Guild went on strike. And uh, there's a lot of great commentary on it. I have my opinion. In fact, I was out picketing at CBS Radford just last week. But we've kind of decided to not go too deep into it because there's way more commentary on it elsewhere and also we are currently trying to get some spokespeople perhaps from the unions or from the amptp or somebody to come on the show and discuss it with us because otherwise it would just be you know you and me running our
1: opinionated yaps like we always do We we do Um, that a lot. It'd be really great if we could find some other people to run their opinionated yaps about this.
0: (laughs) I'd like it if if it was somebody who was a little more influential than you or me. I, I will say that to me, I was absolutely shocked that according to the legend, on the last day, the AMPTP pitched a new thing to SAG that they hadn't pitched before, which was the idea that actors could go in, who are background actors, could go in and get scanned and they would get paid one day's wage for that. And that the company would then own their likeness and be able to use it without their permission as background in anything in perpetuity. So, Mm. in other words, like. Getting uh, rid of background
1: actors forever. yeah. Yeah,
0: exactly. Like, how would you, if you're listening to the sound of my voice, how would you like to go get paid for one day's worth of your job, whatever it is, and then they would use that day's work to digitally
1: recreate everything you do for the rest of your life? Well, I, I think it's pretty likely that they're also looking at the metahuman sort of things. And, you know, they already do some of this, but they're looking at potentially creating uh, fake people to do that all the time. It, it already happens, even in like the stands of like Ted Lasso. And yeah, that's, if that's happening.
0: Could, if you're able to generate people who don't exist anyway, but yeah. who look like real people, because like I'm assuming that you're they're probably just going to scan their heads and not their full bodies because they can just stick anyone's head onto kind of a stock body and have it move around and they're going to dress it however they want to do it so why even bother with an actor if I'm sorry I hope I'm not giving them ideas now but why bother with an actor if you could just have a computer create someone who doesn't exist and you can populate you know like I sort of feel like there's the one thing where we shot in a sports stadium and the bleachers are empty and we're populating them with bodies which to be fair like going back to Lord of the Rings they created a software called Massive that creates crowds of souls and stuff that run at each other and do stuff. It's a crowd simulation. There, there are tons of crowd simulation softwares that are out. I don't think anyone's pushing against that, but it's. I, I'm thinking it's like, uh, you know... Featured you're, 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 you're on a sitcom, and, yeah, you've got, like, a restaurant, and the two main actors are in the foreground, and you've got someone five feet away from them, and that person is going to be a digital person now. And, uh, I mean, if that technology is unstoppable, then that technology is unstoppable, but... It just seemed like a shocking thing. I was like, if they'd come to them and said, hey, come in and we'll scan you and we'll pay you for five days. And then every time we use your likeness, you're going to get a residual on that. And you'll also have the opportunity to opt out. So if they want to put you in a show that you have some objection to being in for whatever reason, you can say, I don't want my likeness in that. Like, I feel like if they came to the table with anything like that, they probably would have gotten a yes. And I wonder, is this just their opportunity? Is this just their attempt to uh, jack the Overton window so open so that when they come back with any other thing, like what I just said, people will be like, oh, okay. So now you're going to pay me to use my likeness over and over and over again. I don't know, but it just seems shockingly tone deaf.
1: Yeah, I agree. It's, An interesting time right now, and uh, I think that there's an awful lot of people who are making their voices heard, and there's a lot of ink being spilled, there's a lot of conversation, there's a lot of talking about all of these things, and I think that if there wasn't a strike if this was if this time wasn't happening right now all of this would be incrementalism and it actually is probably really good that there is a strike and that people are talking about it because yeah. it's forcing people's brains to have to work overtime to try to plan the the what ifs and the what's next yeah. i think that if it had come around at any other time all of these things might have slipped in and people would have just gotten used to the idea and, and then it would have been the de facto standard and there wouldn't it be harder to swim back upstream because people aren't doing that right now? There is an opportunity for the unions to plant their flag and say, no, you know, thou shall not pass. We're going to we're going to draw the line right here. This is what it's going to be. And we'll see what happens. Clever Lord of the Rings reference there.
0: It doesn't even it goes without saying the industry is just ground to a halt. Ain't nothing shooting in L.A. right now except commercials. Exactly true.
1: But also, besides all the strike talk, uh, the Emmy Award yeah. nominations on, on just On a much happened. happier note, yes. Much happier note. And we get to throw a few shout outs to some really, really great shows, shows that you love, shows that I loved. Uh, Last of Us, 24 nominations. How Good incredible God. is that? that? It's really, really great. Uh, Succession had three leads all nominated, which is I, the first time that's ever happened. That's huge. But um, in, in terms of straight up cinematography, too. Yeah, you know, yeah let's uh, get into that. And
0: we've had a, a bunch of the DPs who are nominated on here. Also, a lot of them we haven't had on here. But in the half-hour series, I, I don't even understand why they uh, designate half-hour and hour series. Just to have a series. Because give away more what are, awards
1: that way. Yeah. You want, you want, the, you're, you're, they're not competing against each other. They each get their own category. It's it's great. They can give away more awards. I'd like
0: one for 44-minute for uh, episodes and hour-long just, episodes. Just you wait. Next year, yeah.
1: 44 minutes going to yeah. be there. Yeah.
0: You ain't wrong. Anyway, <laughs> uh, so, yeah. Christian Sprenger for Atlanta. Carl Hurst for Barry love Barry Gary Baum for how I met your father Dean Cundy for the Mandalorian I mean like Dean Cundy. can't go wrong with Dean Kundy. Jesus Christ man's sure. a legend uh, yeah Chris Teague who we've had on the show for only murders in the building and uh, Doon. yeah also John Joffin who was just on the show Pretty, pretty awesome. And then for our long series, we have Damian Garcia.
1: Holy crap. For Andor. Just such a great yeah, show. Andor. God, I, I loved it so much. And I'm I'm really pleased to see. It It was really fantastic work. I'm really pleased to see the nomination there. I, I think people were, were paying attention.
0: Yeah. That show is just a uh, cut above. It's, it's so good. And then, uh, I mean, all these shows are amazing. Adriano nice. Goldman for The Crown on
1: Netflix. Very popular. Yeah. Especially among DPs. I know a lot of DPs who watch The Crown.
0: Yeah, it's high watermark. I mean, it's it's like the gold standard. Uh, then you've got Catherine Goldschmidt for House of the Dragon again. Can't yeah. go wrong with that.
1: Uh, friend of the show, David Mullen for Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. I mean, so, that's so great.
0: Yeah, I I passed around a video that was like a behind the scenes of how they did some of their insane camera work on that show. And it's just uh, it's a work of art in the choreography of just the camera. Like it was like a gimbal thing that was on a crane arm that gets handed off to one person and handed off to another person and put back on a crane arm. Just
1: uh, amazing. And what a nice guy. David Mullen, too. It's it's I hear nothing but great stuff from the people who work with him. That's that's really cool.
0: And then Sean Porter for The Old Man. The Old Man was one of my personal highlights last year. Just an amazing looking show. Just a brilliant show, top to bottom.
1: And, you know, Wednesday, a uh, popular Netflix show, uh, David Lazenberg, he also got uh, a nomination. And Wednesday has a really highly stylized look. And uh, I, I know yeah. that, that people were uh, really, really into that show. They recreated the set or brought the set from Wednesday to Cinegear this year and let people, like, check it out. It was, it was a lot of fun. Fun, fun. And then after that, we have limited or
0: anthology series or movie. And you've got Blackbird, Natalie Kingston,
1: Boston Strangler, which I have not seen. Uh, ben Cutchins. Ben Cutchins was on the show. We talked about Ozark a while back, which is great. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Dead back when We were
0: doing it in, in person all the time, even. It's yeah. a, it a simpler time.
1: Dead Ringers, which, of course, uh, we had Laura Mirian's Gonsalves on to talk about Dead Ringers. But her co-DP for that series, Jody Lee Lipes, who's also been on the show and is also fantastic. He got a nomination, uh, which is tremendous. Okay, congratulations, Jody. That's that's huge. Uh, George and Tammy, that series, uh, Igor Martinovic, I believe that's how you pronounce it, his name. I, uh, that's on Showtime. I haven't seen that one. Guillermo del Toro's Cabinet of Curiosities. I know you were watching that. Uh, yeah. And that's uh, for for the uh, episode, the autopsy, and it's shot by Anastas Michos, I believe, is how you pronounce it. Hundred Foot Wave got nominated too in the nonfiction category. Fantastic to see Hundred Foot Wave get some recognition. And there's a list of like twenty different camera operators or camera DPs here listed. I can't mm. read them all, but uh, you know, congrats. That that's awesome. Really happy to see that. Excellent. So congratulations to all the Emmy nominees.
0: Can't wait to see who won and can't wait to talk to you. Whoever it is who wins all these, we'll talk to you soon.
1: Oh, my God. There's still like, yeah, two or three or four other categories for reality programming. We, we can't do it all because there's a lot of nominations. We will be talking for the entire rest of the, the show. Some of these shows have like 50 names on here. So yeah, uh, but but the full the full list is out there on the Internet. So if you want to see the full list, uh, go check it out. All right. So Ben, I think it's about time to get to the interview. Here we go, here's Katherine Coldiron. The Cinematography Podcast Interview.
0: So we are here today with Katherine Coldiron, the writer of Junk Film, Why Bad Movies Matter. Uh, thank you, first of all, thank you so much for coming on the show.
2: Oh, I'm so happy to be here.
0: Yeah, uh, no, no, I heard you on the Dana Gould Hour and uh, immediately everything you were saying like really resonated with me because I think about this stuff a lot. And uh, maybe it's because I've worked on a few movies that maybe people would consider to be uh, junk movies. Uh, you actually mentioned the first director I ever worked with and when I, was, I, I started out I as a makeup artist and I worked with David Pryor.
2: Oh, wow. Okay. Uh,
0: Yeah. I worked on Raw Justice. That was my first the first movie I ever worked on in my life. I didn't get to work on Deadly Prey, which is the one you talk about and probably the one he's best remembered for. Do you Um, think so?
2: You think Deadly Prey is the one?
0: I have thought about David Pryor a whole lot. And actually, uh, one of his producers and I have kicked around the idea of doing a podcast just about his filmography because he's made 35 features and no one's ever heard of him. I don't know. Uh, and like David Pryor came up in a time when they were trying to fill video store shelves and he was able to make a lot of movies and his budgets got sizable. I think the biggest budget he ever had was one that I also worked on called Mutant Species. And it was like one point four million dollars. You know, that's that's walking around money. It and, is, yeah. uh, you know, he would get kind of well-known stars. And there was something to his movies, but one of those things was not, I would say, an auteur's vision at all, you know. But it's like, we're working on this thing, you know, six, eight weeks every day, full crew, 35 millimeter film. Like it's all the things that make a great movie go into making a bad movie. So before we even get into the the, the major content of your book, you kind of start in the preface with a thesis about... What a bad movie is, you know, you kind of have, I think it's like four or five rules. Could, could you kind of go over those for our listeners?
2: Sure. Um, the things that make bad movies are things like insufficient resources, yeah. whether that's um, solid actors or a budget or good props or whatever else. And then incompetence in the basic mechanics of filmmaking. So like someone who can't light a scene or who can't block a scene. Um, But one of the elements that comes up over and over again is unintentional comedy. And I don't know why, but almost all bad movies seem to share unintentional comedy but the thesis of the book is a whole different thing and that is so first thing is bad movies are unconvincing as movies they are instead successful records of attempts at making movies
0: that was i mean that like really hit me i'm like yeah every bad movie i've ever seen every like horrifically awful you know from the room birdemic i mean on and on troll to you know there's we, we all have our list
2: yeah. And I don't mean to name drop, but Dana Gold thinks this is the funniest thing he's ever heard. Like he continues to bring it up every time I speak mm-hmm. to him. He's just like, what is it you say there? they are records of attempts. At... And I'm like, yeah, records of attempts at making movies. And I, I don't think this is that funny. I think it's just accurate. But it's yeah, fine with me if well, he likes it. It's
0: funny because it, because <laughs> it's so true, because, you know, I mean, like. Every movie is a record of an attempt to make a movie, you know, whether from Schindler's list on, but a bad movie is you can see the mechanics not working.
2: Yeah, the way I put it is they give the audience a holographic view of the successful record and the failed attempt. Yeah. Whereas a really good movie, unless you're, you know, in the same field I'm in, will just sort of pull you along and you'll see the successful attempt instead of seeing the record of the attempt. I also think that knowing more about the context of a bad movie is crucial to understanding and analyzing, but is hardly a license to excuse it. Bad movies are teaching tools for studying and making good movies, and as such, they are best studied in aggregate. So my opinion is that you have to watch a ton of bad movies before you can really learn much of anything from them.
0: So, I mean, there are bad movies in the world. I would say, I don't mean to make anyone mad, but the entire filmography of Lloyd Kaufman and trauma films, none of those are good movies per se. Although, you know, we get people like James Gunn came out of that world, which is to be expected. You know, great filmmakers are going to start working in lower budget things. But would you classify the Toxic Avenger or class of Newcomb High part two subhumanoid meltdown, would you classify those as junk movies or are they executing on on their intention?
2: That is such a good question. And I stayed away from trauma movies for a reason when I wrote this mm. book, because trauma is doing something so different from a movie like Troll 2 or yeah. a movie like The Room. Their endeavor is to make something that's not trying to be good in the same way that John Waters is not trying to make a movie that's exactly yeah he's not he's not trying to make a mainstream acceptable film. And trauma in the same way is not trying to make an acceptable movie. They're trying to make something disgusting and off-putting. And yeah. that's that's just such a different aim that it's not really what I'm getting at in the book, but it's also such an interesting category of filmmaking. And you know, I'd have to write a whole other book about trauma and about Waters and about, I guess, the asylum a little bit, what the asylum is doing.
0: (laughs) And any of the Sharknado movies, it actually hits all of these points that that you bring up, but somehow they make money doing it.
2: Well, I think the thing for me that distinguishes the asylum is that they're cynical, which, you know, Roger Corman movies are not cynical and trauma movies are, I think, rarely cynical. It's a complicated dynamic that the asylum is doing. But the thing that ma- it made me think of was Graydon Clark, who is, mm. um, he directed Satan's Cheerleaders and Uninvited and Star Games. He is sort of a 30-year veteran of not very good movies, but the way that he made movies was as fast as possible. He was incredibly competent at making the movie and turning it out, just turning out the content in the same way that you were talking about David Pryor. like He could fill a video store, absolutely. And he never, I think, made anyone uncomfortable or exploited anyone, but he also didn't care very much about quality. And I kind of feel like that's the big balance in being a director. I don't know, because I'm not a director, but I feel like if you can make sure that everyone's comfortable and happy and working well, and give a damn about the final quality, then there's your movie. If you compromise on either one of those things, then I don't think you're going to come up with anything good.
0: Interesting. In your book, you cover things like cop rock and staying alive and showgirls, you know, which are and made by real industry veterans as well. But like, you start with Ed Wood. You start with two big chapters about Ed Wood and Plan 9 from Outer Space. And actually, I've seen Plan 9 from Outer Space. You know, the cinematography isn't great, but, you know. No, it's not
2: terrible. It's functional. His issue is blocking really more than any, like he, he doesn't know how to block a scene to make it make sense with successive shots. I find that cinematography in bad movies is most often competent. The thing that is often lacking is stuff like editing, you know, where, how to string along narrative logic from one scene to another, to another, to another. And you need a cinematographer who knows how to set up a camera to, you know, contain information in the frame, but you don't necessarily need one who's going to shoot a perfect sunset. Um, Yeah the art in these movies is not in question so much as like a basic level of competency that makes a movie watchable and i think that's most often not in place and the cinematographer doesn't bear a lot of blame for that it's mostly the director who says you know set up the shot so that you can sort of see his face but not really (laughs) and i'm just trying to think of examples of like really poor cinematography in any of the movies that i talk about because deathbed for instance has good cinematography There's great, great great color in that. The distance and the framing are good. It's all in 16 millimeter, but it's it's well done. Attack of the 50 foot woman has not great cinematography, but it's not any real different than the uh, monster movies of the time. Yeah, yeah. Um, I was
0: actually surprised. I I loved your essay about Attack of the 50-Foot Woman, but I was surprised that you singled that one out because I have seen it and I don't know if it's about, you know, the, the further you are away from when something comes out, the harder it is to distinguish what was good and what was bad. I often wonder, you know, in 500 years, will somebody watch a movie with Arnold Schwarzenegger and not be able to tell it from... Anthony Hopkins acting wise, because the language will have just, you know, moved so far. Like, really, I I think about that a lot. And so, like, I'm curious, what about that one of all the movies of that era that grabbed your attention in that way?
2: Uh, I think it was because the main character is a human monster instead of Mm. a bug monster, which is pretty unusual for 50s movies. You know, the cycle of monster movies is big grasshoppers and big ants and big spiders and big whatevers because of radiation, Godzilla. Uh, But for it to be a person is not frequent. There was, you know, the amazing colossal man and then the incredible shrinking man and then the attack of the 50-foot woman. And there's only a handful of them. So that's interesting. It's also basically a fetish piece which is kind of fun to think about in a time when sexuality was so repressed um, yeah, yeah. but also the thing that I argue in the book is that it's an opportunity to make a feminist film and it's just completely bypassed and that's challenging <laughs> for someone like me who wants to think yeah. about feminist issues in film
0: did you see the remake that uh, they made it was in the 90s I think
2: I did actually Christopher Guest directed that
0: I did not know that he directed it I'm like God. <laughs>
2: Um, it was an HBO original movie back before HBO was really a prestige hub. and it's strongly influenced by Tim Burton in the kind of look of it because it's like a, it's like a cartoonish Arizona look, lots of color, lots of kind of Southwest color. And it's not great, but it's much more interestingly a feminist piece than the original. Mm-hmm. And at the end, it turns into just straight up a fetish piece. <laughs> <laughs> like there's really? this Yeah. There's this scene of these like giantesses looking down on this little dude and, you know, they're all wearing high heels and Barbarella gear. So it's yeah,
0: <laughs> I think I saw it at the time and I just don't remember it very well. But yeah, yeah, I've seen the original attack of the 50 foot woman. And it's interesting because, yeah, I mean, I can see how kind of it's a, a squandered opportunity in at that time. How subversive could they have gotten away with that movie being though?
2: Medium. Yeah. you You have a point. Uh, But I also think The Incredible Shrinking Man deals very deftly with masculinity issues in a way that was almost unequaled. And Attack of the 50-Foot Woman could have been that interesting if it had more thoughtful people behind the camera. And Mm. it just didn't.
0: Interesting. Well, let's get into Ed Wood because you spend two awesome chapters on, as you call it, an exegesis of Plan 9 from Outer Space. For my money, I've always argued that Glenn or Glenda is a far worse movie than Plan 9 from Outer Space, and that Plan 9 is almost performance art in its badness. And my question is, was he being saved by other people like on Bride of the Monster? (laughs) Uh, What explains the noteworthy badness of this movie?
2: Very good question. I think the multi-genre aspect of Plan 9, the way that it's at once a zombie movie and a sci-fi movie and a war movie and a peace movie, like all of mm. these genres that kind of get shoved together in the soup of Plan 9 is part of why it's such a, such a singular experience. I think I think you might be remembering Bride of the Monster a little better than it
0: is. <laughs> okay, that's that's totally fair.
2: It's not good. It's also got a little bit more of a discernible plot than Plan Nine, because Plan 9's plot is hidden inside sort of stock footage and kind of feints and go arounds because yeah. the, the plot actually has to do with the aliens but the aliens don't show up until 25 minutes into the movie which is ridiculous that you know you would avoid the main plot of the movie for the first quarter of it but bride of the monster is a lot more straightforward yeah in terms of Glenn or Glenda, I mean, I've had this conversation a lot just because the two chapters that you're talking about in junk film were released independently as a book, a monograph about Plan Nine from Outer Space. And mm-hmm. when I was touring that around, I ended up having just so many conversations with people about Edward. and people's opinions are just all over the place about what his best movie is and whether he's good at certain things or not. And a lot of folks think that Glenn or Glenda is better, that it's the best movie he made. And I think that's crazy, but far be it I mean, from it, me.
0: In a way, it's the most honest movie he ever made. It's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's just sort of like reading his journal from when he was 12 years old or something. It's, it's like cringy honesty. Um, yes. You yeah. know, amazing that, any, that he was able to sell the idea to someone that that could be a mainstream film or that that could make any money because it's so painfully personal.
2: It is. I I think he was trying to capitalize on Christine Jorgensen, but I also, yeah, I have, I have strong opinions about Glenn or Glenda. Um, I just, I think, I think plan nine is unique because a whole bunch of things came together to make it what it is. He had independent financing, which meant he could more or less do whatever he wanted. And the people who were financing him had no experience in film, which meant that he could sell this screenplay and no one would look at it and say, okay, this is garbage. He had some experienced people in front of the camera, not all, but some, and a few experienced people behind the camera. So he was able to kind of manipulate a bunch of different forces into making the movie that he exactly wanted. Yeah. That meant that it's I think it's the purest expression of what he loves and what he likes. But that's unfortunate. <laughs> <laughs>
0: And this is something that, you know, like as I'm reading your book, we've all seen bad movies. We've all seen even terrible movies. I would even say that like Plan 9 from Outer Space, class it all up and make it look great. And it would be like Dreamcatcher, Lawrence Kasdan's Dreamcatcher, which is also a terrible film like really bad, mm-hmm. but like it's got your war, it's got your aliens, it doesn't have zombies, but it has body snatching close enough. I mean, and maybe the problem is that we're blending all these genres, but like even growing up as a kid, I remember there was a movie I think it was called Terror in the Isles that had a bunch of like Saturday Night Live alum and John Candy and stuff commenting on old movies. And they did like a whole section on Plan 9. Plan 9 was like blew into people's consciousness. I believe it was on somebody's list of the worst movie ever made.
2: It was the Medved's it, book about the Golden yeah. Turkey Awards.
0: Yeah. So, like, what is it that's enduring enduringly horrible about that movie. It it was uh, whenever uh, that documentary Best Worst Movie came out and and, like the world was in full The Room furor and stuff like that, and, and I felt like there was so much discussion about that, I was actually like, hey, why don't we talk about independent filmmakers who make good films? It feels like we're really focusing on the bad films. But the truth is a movie like The Room or a movie like Plan 9 from Outer Space is noteworthy in its badness that makes it kind of transcend the genre so like what made plan it was it just the medved book or is there more to it was plan nine always kind of bubbling under the surface in people's minds as like this is just a wretched terrible movie
2: there are worse movies than plan nine i've seen a lot of them plan nine is a delight to watch it's never You know, you never feel dread or annoyance when you're watching it because each new moment comes up with something new to laugh at or be amazed by. Uh, Even if you're being amazed by, it's poor quality it's still something amazing and that's part of why i think it has lasted the Medved book definitely brought attention to it but that attention has never really flagged i mean it's gone up and down in the in the 90s there was a revival because of the movie that burton did and then when the room came around it kind of brought attention to all the other bad movies and this is probably the most famous one It kind of comes up and down. Like you said, Best Worst Movie was a great kind of moment for bad movie lovers to circle around and say, oh, yeah, let's talk about this. Let's talk about Troll 2. Let's talk about Plan 9. But it's very rare that a movie so much the product of one person's imagination Mm -hmm. can be so bad and yet last. In the 50s, because films were made on a production line much more than they were for the rest of the century, for one person's imagination to create a film all by itself was just so exceedingly rare that you never see a movie that is so singularly bad from that decade. Yeah. You know, they're bad in the sense of the B movies that the studios put out or Poverty Rope put out. But like for one guy to splay everything on the screen the way that Ed Wood did is unusual. So I think that's part of it, is that it's kind of singular. I also think that the writing in Plan 9 is so special. It's mm. so easy to kind of listen to and repeat and take delight in, in a way that a lot of bad scripts are not. Part of that is sort of Chriswell and his delivery, but another part of it is just that the writing is abominable and in surprising in new ways on every page yeah, of the yeah, script. Yeah, yeah,
0: but it's, it's entertaining in, <laughs> yes. in how bad it is.
2: Yeah. So, I mean, I think it's a lot of things all put together the same way that the singular badness of the room is totally delightful in a way that the badness of all the video store movies that David Pryor made is it's a different kind of enjoyability.
0: Yeah. Although, like I remember I was on set on Mutant Species when like one of the special forces guys grabs Ted Pryor, David's brother, and and says, "You special forces guys are always more mouth than ass. And I was like... (laughs) I was the, I was the assistant make or I was I was helping out the special effects makeup people on that one and I was like you sure about that line, made the cut, you know. Uh, <laughs> I mean, like,
2: there's a there's a David Dakota movie that's a lot like David Pryor's movies called The Journey Absolution, that's mm-hmm. like a bunch of guys in a military school together and um, Mario Lopez is in it and it's. It's got a lot of that, that, like, ass conversation yeah. that's, you know, a bunch of guys in a, in a military school together maybe shouldn't be talking about ass this much.
0: Yeah, it's a lot of ass talk. <laughs> and yeah, yeah. I mean, like, I don't know, mouth, ass, same sentence, yeah, like, and, you know. Yeah, it's not good. <laughs> You know, oh yeah, David, it's
2: not. It's just not doing what you think it's doing.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's gonna. It's gonna get the opposite reaction. You know, this is a movie that's being made for VHS. Although I, I think they might have released it on DVD at some point. Um, so, in the movies that you chose, what was the criteria for what you chose? Because, for instance, you you don't have a chapter about Troll Two. You don't have a chapter about the Room. Although you have a chapter about Best Friends. Best, Best
2: Friends. Yeah.
0: You know, the Tommy Wiseau not exactly follow up, but the Greg Sestero Tommy Wiseau team up movie. And then also you have stuff that aren't movies like Cop Rock, which uh, I had forgotten about Cop Rock, but man, oh, man, it made me uh, after reading it, I went and watched a bunch of the old videos and it was like, what the hell?
2: What were they thinking? I know a lot of people have forgotten about Cop Rock kind of society wide. Um, You have a very good point. I didn't write about Troll 2 because I don't like watching Troll 2. I I find it sort of a repulsive movie, so I have a hard time with it. Um, I didn't write about the room because a lot of people have written about the room, and I didn't. I didn't really want to be just another essay about the room. That's um, fair. It's kind of like it's like well covered, you know,
0: Inc- I, including in the book, The Disaster Artist, which like I wasn't uh, the world's biggest fan of the movie, but the book was riveting to me.
2: Oh my gosh, that's one of my favorite books about film. It's actually it's great that I got uh, Greg Sestero and Ty Burr to blurb my book because both of them wrote books that are in my top five favorite film books of all time so it was just a real pleasure to have them read my book too yeah i just i picked the ones that i wanted to talk about and it's like one of the ones that i picked was ruby which is this very obscure movie from 1977 but I thought it was a really interesting movie. And so I had something to say about it. And that doesn't mean that I think it is as important in bad movie dumb as Deathbed or Plan 9. But I do think that it's worth studying and worth thinking about.
0: Why Why don't we talk more about Ed Wood's later films? You know, oh. uh, or, or, Orgy of, what was it, Orgy of the Damned? What orgy was the one? of the
2: Dead. Orgy of the Dead. And Necromania. And, uh, yeah, he... Oh, boy. I mean, I think the reason is because his story gets more and more depressing. And a lot of folks kind of don't want to know that part of Ed Wood. As someone who knows more about Ed Wood than your average Ed Wood fan, I kind of don't ever want to talk about that stuff because the truth of his character kind of comes out when you start talking about what happened to him in later life. And that's just not as fun or as optimistic as Burton's movie of him.
0: That's true. Well, I mean, but at a certain point, he just got to do it as a profession, though. Like, you know, I mean, in a sense, kind of kind of got what he wanted. Like he wasn't waiting tables on the side. He was making movies.
2: No, but he was I mean, what he was basically doing was for money. He was writing porn books
1: mm-hmm. like
2: paperback uh, smut. And then drinking that money away rather than making movies with it. And um, he had a very stormy partnership with this guy, Stephen Apostoloff, um, with whom he made a bunch of movies, whether he wrote the screenplays or acted in them or directed them. Few of them he directed. But from early in his life where he was dismissive of pornography and smut and jiggle movies, he Mm -hmm. turned into a purveyor of them. And that hypocrisy is not a popular thing to talk about when you talk about Ed Wood.
0: But, it, I mean, I do think it's interesting, though, that he he got to keep making some movies, you know, whereas, like, The Room. Tommy so made, like, I, I remember seeing, like, a trailer for something he was doing that was, like, an office comedy or something, but mm-hmm. I don't think it ever got released. If it did, I, it never... I've it never...
2: did It did get released, but it didn't it doesn't have the same extraordinary melodrama as The Room, so it's yeah. not as enjoyable. He just released a trailer for a shark movie that he made that's coming out supposedly this year. And In- I can't wait, especially because Neil Breen is ha- has a new movie this year, too. So well,
0: and I want to get to the Neil Breen of it all, too, for sure. <laughs> but like with Tommy Wiseau, I feel like one of the things about The Room, the alchemy of The Room is it hits all your criteria, I think. Mm-hmm but he can't repeat that because what that was was an honest film again it's sort of like plan nine there's like an honest expression coming from him and then he realized that what people thought was that his honest expression was hilariously stupid and then he embraced that and said it's not a tennessee williams movie it's a comedy but now how could he ever do that again if he tried to bottle it it would feel forced
2: exactly and you can't be vulnerable again once people have laughed at your vulnerability
0: well, and uh, we kind of touched on cop rock a little bit, because, yeah. you know, when you're talking about that, it's like, here's an example of extremely experienced people who knew what they were doing, who made something that's incomprehensibly bad, mm-hmm. like just awful. I'd forgotten that Anne Bobby from uh, Nightbreed was in that show. I was so uh, that was the one thing I was like, oh, cool. It's it's she's the, great the... in it, too. Yeah. Like
2: she's uh, I was when I when I talk about that, the the story that involves her and the her partner is like the only part of that show that I like.
0: Yeah. But like, Um, it's one thing to say Tommy Wiseau, who is like taking an acting class with Greg Sestero and had ambitions, throwing a bunch of money into making a movie when he didn't really know what he was doing and Filming it simultaneously on 35 millimeter and HD and like doing all these extremely oddball things that he did to make that movie. It's another thing to be like Steven Bochco, who was as successful in television as anyone can be. And I I always feel like someone who's like really proved themselves in it, you know, like the Cohen brothers can go make a piece of garbage movie because I believe that that is their attempt to do something and it fails, but it'll still be more interesting than, you know, 90% of the movies that are ever made. Anyone who's great at their work or even just very interesting, like Clive Barker, I'll watch. Whatever whatever Clive Barker ever makes. Totally. Just because, like, there's really something there. So, Steve Bochko, I think I would allow him a complete whiff, even though I wasn't a fan of the cop shows that he made. Mm-hmm. But why include that in this? I, I guess I'm answering my own question. Like, it's very entertaining to watch, but it's like, this is like an alien making a musical and not understanding. It's like <laughs> AI today when you, like, plug something into Mid Journey and it just doesn't understand the prompt. Sure. And it makes a weird image.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, each essay that i wrote for this book i wanted to say something different about bad movies mm-hmm. so in some ways each movie was an example and the example that i always turn to when i talk about interesting failures is sky captain in the world of tomorrow oh, which yeah. is such a such an interesting fuck up because it's a failure of a movie Why it fails, you'd have to like take it apart and look at its component pieces to figure out what's messed up about it. And that Uh,
0: filmmaker, I don't think has ever made another thing since. No,
2: I don't think so. And the reason I included Cop Rock is because I felt like it was an interesting failure, like these other Mm. movies. I was amazed by the exuberance of its failure. And I felt that that deserved addressing. I also kind of wanted to Remind everyone that it existed. Oh yeah! Because when I first heard about it, I didn't quite believe my own eyes and ears, and I. You're, I kind you're of, right.
0: You describe it as being like an SNL skit, and it really does feel like when you watch it, you're like, no one could have thought this was gonna work. Yes, like, this, exactly. This, this had to be just re- like everyone had to have been in on the joke. This was a joke.
2: Yeah, or on a lot of cocaine, because <laughs> it's very it's very difficult to take seriously, and that's. That's kind of fun. That's kind of fun yeah. to imagine television in 1990. So I think that anyone could have made Bochko's mistake in that he was riding high on a lot of success, and he thought that everything he touched would turn to gold, and everyone around him thought that too. But he failed to understand that just because he knew an awful lot about the cop show genre and knew an awful lot about television didn't mean that he knew everything there was to know about the genres that were gonna cross over into cop rock. So and it's a mistake that a lot of people make. The Coen brothers are a great example of multi genre filmmakers where they can just they can dip their toes into just about any genre and make a really good film out of it. Fincher's pretty good at that, too. But mm-hmm. um, Danny
0: Boyle. There, I mean, you can, there's a bunch.
2: Oh, for sure. But somebody like Guy Ritchie, you know, he's kind of good at one thing. And if you yeah. take him out of that thing and put him into something else, he's not going to do it as well.
0: No, that's interesting. Well, it's, What's also interesting is I think that there's an intentional uh, self-imposed blindness that Stephen Bochco would have in common with Edward, which is like, I know I don't know how to do this. I'm going to do it anyway.
2: Right. Yes. But the difference is that I think Bochco would have said, oh, I know how to do this. This is just I know how to do a cop show so I can do anything that has to do with a cop show and yeah. not recognizing the fundamental differences between genres and cop show and musical is just like, I'm sorry, buddy, but you don't know how to do this. <laughs>
0: Your descriptions of like the way you just I, I, that chapter alone just had me laughing. It, it, it just the way you're describing his the disconnect. And it, again, it, it made me like go to YouTube and look up uh, specifically uh, baby, baby merchant, oh,
2: baby merchant. It's a. Oh, uh, my
0: God. It's rough. And I, yeah, <laughs> I feel like somebody should do uh, cop rock. They should like get all that music and just make a stage musical out of it.
2: You know, the thing is, I don't think that it would be crazy to make a cop show musical. Uh, you know, either on tele- well, television, probably not, but on the stage. Yeah. But I think that you would have to know a lot more about musicals and how they work.
1: Yeah.
0: And yeah.
2: Botchko just didn't understand. Yeah.
0: <laughs> so before we go, if you were to do a second volume of this, what are some of the movies that you might include? Or because you also have TV shows and books and stuff in this. What are some of the other works that intrigued you maybe that have caught your eye since you wrote it? What are some of the other ones you think uh, would be worth study?
2: I definitely would want to write about Streets of Fire.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, it's a fascinating movie, and it's not as tiresome to watch as some of the other ones that I've considered. Because um, that's really the barrier is like to write about these movies. I have to watch them over and over again. Yeah, <laughs> and I just couldn't, I couldn't face watching Troll Two four times to kind of figure out what was going on with it. I really love erotic thrillers, so I might do kind of a chapter on that, like specifically The Color of Night is just bonkers. Oh, my God. But it's also it's also kind of not a movie that I need to break down and analyze and interpret because it's just what it is on its face. I would definitely write about The Visitor, like 100 percent. I would write about that movie. Um, a lot of folks. I, have...
0: I love The Visitor. I, I they did yeah. a, a retro uh, retrospective screening of it at uh, when the silent movie theater was CineFamily. They, they did it there and I went and saw that. And I also saw Roar, which which oh, uh, yeah, like that movie is just again, like that movie will, will live with you for a long time. Oh,
2: I know. I, I actually I'm not sorry I watched it exactly, but I never want to see it again. It's horrifying.
0: Yeah, um, that movie. And it's what's brilliant about Roar to me is that it's like meant to be like a PG rated family movie.
2: Exactly. <laughs> and you're watching it.
0: And and instead, it's like the most realistic horror movie ever, because <laughs> you're like waiting for somebody. You're watching somebody who has already been cut acting while they're bleeding and trying to cover up their wound all yes. over and over. Yes. Oh, my uh-huh.
2: God. Yeah. Um, so The Visitor, for sure.
0: Uh-huh. Okay. Well, Catherine, thank you so much for coming on. I think we're going to give away an autographed copy of your book on the show. Great. Can't recommend uh, the book highly enough. So uh, thank you so much for coming on the show. Before we go, uh, where can people find you online?
2: I am on Twitter for as long as Elon Musk will have me. Um, (laughs) My handle is Fairy Frigida, F-E-R-R-I-F-R-I-G-I-D-A. But you can also just search my last name, which is not common. I have a newsletter, and you can find that on my website, which is kcoldiron.com. And um, the book is available almost entirely. I mean, it's on like barnesandnoble.com, and it might be in bookstores, but the main place to find it is Amazon. So check it out there, Kindle, paperback, and I will really look forward to your thoughts, everyone out there.
1: Excellent. Well, thank you so much for being on the show.
2: Of course. It was a pleasure.
1: All right. So that was Catherine Coldiron. Thanks so much for being on the show. And of course, if you loved hearing about uh, Catherine's book, go to our Instagram at the Cinepod and there'll be instructions there on how to enter the book giveaway. Hey Ben, it is Bill paying time. Let's talk Woohoo. about our uh, fine sponsor, Aperture, maker of uh, incredible lighting products, really, really high value lights. Uh, starting off at sort of like the entry level of the industry, uh, they have a brand called Amaran, which really has some less expensive lights than the Aperture brand itself is becoming more and more popular and being used by not just content creators, but uh, filmmakers of, of every level and getting onto some. Thank of the you, thank biggest. you for
0: differentiating content creators. From- from filmmakers. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'm,
1: I'm trying my best because I, I keep seeing people conflate those things. Oh, yeah. And so, anyway, this is, an, this is a commercial though for Aperture. Aperture makes these fine things. They support our show. We really appreciate them. They have a really cool product called the InfiniBar. I've talked about it before in our Aperture ads, but I want to just point it out because there's some really, really cool features inside the InfiniBars, meaning, in particular, being specific, Pixels and mappable pixels, meaning you can change the color, you can change the brightness, you can change the flicker effects on each one of these bars. And they come in a one foot, two foot and four foot variety, which is really, really impressive. And they all link together and they power together that way, too. So you can make some really clever really interesting patterns and combinations, and you can buy them over at Hot Ride Cameras. I know uh, we just sold a bunch of them, so I'm pleased to see that the industry is uh, embracing them. And it is a very clever special effects tool, which you can use for virtual stages and all kinds of things where you can map your video signal to it and then have the same color light as your video source going into it, then show on your actors or subjects. So if that nice. is the sort of thing that you are interested in, if that's the sort of thing that you are working on, if you're in these new fangled virtual stage interactive lighting it, this is becoming more and more of a thing I'm talking to universities that are putting the, these uh, stages in now there are some very cool products which can uh, mimic the interactivity of you know dynamic light sources on your subjects in the foreground. And it's super cool. Uh, it's worth taking a look at the Infinibars from Aperture because they're just good, good products. I, I, I've really been enjoying them. So you can check it out at Hot Red Cameras, hotredcameras.com. And now, short ends. All right, so Ben, uh, now that the ad is behind us and we are moving into our short ends, our obsession of the week, what are you all about? What are you paying attention to? What, what's on your radar? a random uh youtube channel popped up on my
0: radar and it, it immediately caught my attention because it was uh, well the, the name of the video is the solway firth spaceman mystery new evidence and it and i was <laughs> wow. like what new evidence uh it's not new evidence so for those people who aren't familiar with the solway firth spaceman you can google it right now you may have seen this image it was taken in 1964. in fact it was taken on the 23rd of may 1964 in the uk and it's a little girl like a five-year-old girl she and her dad are out in, in a park like in a field and in one of the photographs what appears behind her looks like a spaceman Hmm. completely at random and according to legend her dad like took a bunch of pictures of her like goofing around in this field then took it down to the to the local uh, photo mat or whatever they had had it developed and then it came back the you know the guy at the photo mat was like hey there's uh, someone behind her this is no good and he's like there was no one behind her and there's clear as day a spaceman wearing a helmet right behind her oh wow right uh, yeah. and when i say clear as day slightly out of focus <laughs> and um What this channel does, and this is like totally my kind of thing, but also I think I think it does kind of relate to cinematography a little bit, at least, is he does kind of a photographic deconstruction of what he believes it is. And should I spoil it? Does it matter? His video goes into a great deal of detail, but there are other photos in the same role of the girl's mom and she's wearing like a spaghetti strap blue dress. Right. Mm -hmm. And she has dark hair. She's behind her in like full sunlight, overexposed, and it's washing out the blue, so it's making it look like a white spacesuit, sort of. And then the dark head is kind of looking like a visor, but he was like, what could possibly, and this is this is the new evidence, are you ready? Are you sitting down, Ilya? I'm sitting
1: down. So
0: it was like, okay, so if her hair is kind of creating the head, like, why doesn't it look right? Why, What? what's up with the head? And he looked and found that they were in a waning, gibbous moon right at that time, and at that time of day, In that part of the sky, the moon would have been right about where that woman's
1: head was. Oh, interesting. Creating a halo around her head that looks a lot like a helmet. turns out there's a scientific explanation for everything.
0: Uh, kind of, yeah, yeah, and it, you know, it's a big pile of no fun when we when we debunk our myths that uh, there are UFO space people among us, you know, because there are if you look it up, there's no end to the conspiracy theory, loony UFO talk on there, and I have nothing but respect for weird ass UFO stuff. It's been something I've been interested in my whole life. Don't really believe any of it, but I think it's fascinating. But it was interesting watching this guy basically take it down by deconstructing the photograph by basically like people said, well, it can't be a person because if they were, they'd be like 10 feet tall. So he photoshopped the girl out and superimposed a person's body on it, it was like, no, that's actually that works at that height, and you know. Looks like this woman would be standing on the ground right here. Anyway, I found it super fascinating. And uh, even if he's wrong and there really are spacemen, I feel like he came up with a heck of a uh, of a cool theory as to how this photograph could have been taken and nobody would have noticed it. That's really cool.
1: Yeah, that's really cool. I'd check that out. Sounds like fun. Yeah, Yeah. Totally worth it. So, Ilya, what is your pet obsession of the week? It's a new series, but. You can't watch it in any of the traditional places. It's very similar to some of the other people who have... Wait, uh, is it only available on Apple Vision headsets? No, it's not. It is only available through a web portal uh it's a tv series from steven Soderbergh. steven Soderbergh. i'm a fan his stuff comes out every once in a while he plays over a a very wide and diverse map and a lot of different types of of programming this is a series it's eight episodes it stars michael cera and lieve schreiber and the series i don't even want to really say what it's about but it's sort of this science fiction future inception type of thing that involves like a a I I don't even want to say I'm going to say instead, go to the link at camnoir.com to go check out Command Z. They have uh, their own specialty website, which is commandzseries.com, and it costs $7.99 to watch it. You watch it through their web portal and all the money says is being donated to charity and they have links on here for climate change actions, local ones to you, uh, to combat disinformation and to run for political office. So I think that this is actually a very novel and very interesting way to institute change amongst uh, people out there who might be fans of Steven Soderbergh. And this literally just dropped in the last 24 hours. And i hmm. got to say, I followed the Command Z show on Instagram. I was the 100th follower. This has not exactly been out there for very long. They've only made six posts. Uh, they're on On TikTok, I think they have 10 followers on on TikTok. That's it. 10 followers. 10 more than me. (laughs) 10 more than me, too. But... I got to say, the trailer makes this look really great, and I'm not always, I'm not always one who who makes impulsive decisions to just purchase something, but everything about this felt a little bit different, and the trailer looked great, and I really wanted to see it, so uh, I'm very much looking forward to figuring out how to cast this to my big screen, and hopefully uh, really enjoy Command Z, which I have, there's no reviews on that I could find, it seems like it's just like, surprise, here's this new thing, and because Steven Soderbergh Plays in such a, you know, diverse ballpark of work, I'm not exactly sure what I'm going to get, except that I know I like Michael Sarah, I know I like Liev Schreiber. I know I like Steven Soderbergh. Uh, I, can't, I can't wait to get into this and uh, see what it's all about. I promise to report back afterwards on the show and let you know how it is. I mean, Steven Soderbergh,
0: you know, love him or hate him. I mean, I, I think it's impossible to hate him. He's, he's done so many cool things. But, like, he's always the first person to try some intuitive. Really like he, was, the first day and date release was Bubble, a movie that he directed. One of the first big movies that shot using DV was uh, Full Frontal, which was sure. uh, which which he right. shot on the Canon XL. XL1 That's and right. 35 millimeter film. Um, uh, he's, he's
1: he's a neophilia. That guy loves new stuff. And uh, neophilia. Ooh, that's that's a clever new word. I, I like that. Oh, that that's the real word. That's for people who are into the new. So yeah, he's yeah. a he's a neophiliac. He likes new things, and I really appreciate that he likes new things in uh, this industry, in the space that he plays. He likes new cameras. He's always at the you know at the forefront. I think it's it's really exciting to see whatever he's going to do next. I guarantee you, it won't be boring. Love it or hate it, it yeah. you won't be bored. That that's. That he's really great at that. I, so. I
0: I think my opinions of his work go from love to like. You know, like I don't th- I don't think I've ever watched a Steven Soderbergh thing and been like, eh. Like yeah. most of his stuff is really good. And, uh, you know, and then he does things like the Nick that are just, you know, brilliant and incredible.
1: I'd love to get his DP on here named uh, Peter Andrews. I mean, really. Peter no, Andrews. I, yeah, that, I, that, I,
0: that, I, that guy's got quite a body of work behind him. He does have a body of work <laughs>
1: behind him. But, you know, what? I would really love to have uh Steven Soderbergh come on this show as Peter Andrews. I think in that, character, in character. That would be so much fun. I think it'd be so great that if he, uh, you know, yeah, he he didn't play for, himself. For, for those who, who
0: don't know, uh, Peter Andrews is Steven Soderbergh. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, uh, but the, but I think I think his dad's name was like Peter Andrew Soderbergh or something. I, I think that he, I, he derived from his dad. I mean, uh, you know, we did have Walt Lloyd on the show who shot his first two movies. He mm. shot Sex, Lies, and Videotape and Kafka. Oh, yeah. And I, I think that Soderbergh has worked with like three DPs before he just started doing it all himself. So he just he DPs and directs everything he does. Oh. I would love to talk to him because I love his work. Also, because he's retired and then started up again three times since I started the sentence.
1: Yeah. Yeah, also, I was going to say, I think he's he's know. retired and come out of retirement more times than you've been employed, I think you were saying, just before we started the show. So it's to- totally true. Totally true. But also, like, we haven't had too many people on the show.
0: I mean, I know we had like Shalada Bruce Christensen mm-hmm. uh, talk about this, but like people who
1: direct NDP at the same time, yeah. to me, that's like how that, do you- that. that how do you do that? That's like I don't I don't know. <laughs> I mean, it's and like it, you have to be so mentally engaged in directing and DPing, and then to do them both together. That's like yeah. That that's and you imagine him doing it like on giant chess. studio
0: projects oh, like yeah. o- Ocean's Eleven with all the top movie stars in the world. Like that's just got to be.
1: <laughs> and, and you know his stuff doesn't look bad. It actually it looks really really good. He is playing at like this yeah. su- super high level.
0: So it's like that skill set yeah, I mean, is. There are people like him. Robert Rodriguez does the same thing. Uh,
1: Peter Hyams. There, there's a few directors who also DP, and
0: he's uh, he's
1: John probably G. Avildsen. You know, way back when, if yeah. you ever saw, you know, like the Karate Kid or Power of One. I mean, yeah, there's 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 some people out there who can just do that. I don't get it. I would love to talk to him about that.
0: But yeah, I mean, he's uh, obviously one of the main cinematic voices of the last 30 years. So I, I anything he does will be interesting. So, uh, Ilya, let's uh, wrap it
1: up before we go. Uh, where can people find you? You can find me over at Hot Red Cameras, hotredcameras.com, or you can find me over at LinkedIn. Uh, it seems to be a, a thing. I'm getting LinkedIn messages about the podcast on, on regularity now. So, Ooh, yeah, very cool. Exactly. Uh, and ben, where can people find you? They want to track you down.
0: Uh, go to Benrock.com, just the way it sounds, and you can find all uh, my socials on there. Although, like, I don't think they have Blue Sky or, or uh, Threads on there yet, but uh, I'm on those two. Ch- check it out. Watch my reel. Say hi. Find me on social media and say hello. Uh, so before we go, Ilya, who should we thank this week?
1: Hey, let's thank Alana Cody. Alana Cody grinding it out, working out uh, new interviews for us, all kinds of stuff. Uh, I'm really excited about sort of the shape of future uh, interviews. There's all kinds of uh, good people coming up and uh, I can't, I can't wait to actually get to those. So I'm excited. Uh, Let's thank Ben Katz who, uh, we did not make it so easy on Ben Katz today. Oh, Ben, ben
0: Katz, I'm so sorry about everything about me this week. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God, dude, yeah, I'm but, so sorry.
1: We, we did our best to go back and, and re-record a little bit there to, to try to lighten Ugh. that load. But yeah, uh, our, our intrepid editor, thank you, Ben Katz, for, for making us not sound like idiots. That, that was great. And Oof. and let's, uh, let's thank K. Zalatrachi. Kay Zellatraci, he is the maestro behind the music that you hear when you listen to the Cinematography Podcast. When you listen to Cinepod, it starts off with his music, and uh, I'm going to say it's highly influential. There's other podcasts out there, and I swear, they heard his music, and I think they went to someone, hey, give me me something that sounds (laughs) like like that. I want to a track. She sounded like. The joke's on them, they could have just asked they, they They absolutely could have. Oh, and I should probably say, you know, I know that we're having some influence too, because according to Chartable, we hit number 17 in the US for film and TV interviews, which is like, I think an all time record for us. Number 17 out of like, I don't even know how many thousands and thousands of thousands of podcasts you know, are in that category, but man, there was only 16 shows that had more downloads than us that week. So that's That's pretty cool. It's very exciting. I know. Really blown away. Anyway, Ben, uh, I think that's just about going to do us. You want to take us out? Thanks for listening.
0: This has been the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras. Find your next camera, lens, or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening.